This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. to Romans chapter 5, and I just want to read one verse, Romans, Romans 5 and verse 20 only. Paul said, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Paul here in Romans 5 is trying to show the contrast between law and grace, between Adam and Jesus, between Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience between Adam's offense and Christ's gift, between Adam's trespass and Christ's righteousness, between Adam's sin reigning in us and us reigning in life through Christ Jesus. And in verse 20, by way of contrast again, he says, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Sin with all its cunning, with all its temptations, with all its ability to rack and to ruin and to devastate lives and to bring fear and doubt and disappointment, it is no match for the amazing grace of God. Hallelujah. No matter how bad it is or how deep it is, it is no match for God's amazing grace. And Paul's contrast here is emphatic. It's undisputed. It is without doubt. Grace can overcome every plot and every plan of the evil one against our lives. The two words that he uses here in this contrast are very, very different. Where sin abounded, where grace much more abounded. And the two words he used are very different. Abounded here in the first instance is pleonazo, which means increased, multiplied, bounded. In fact, the first part of verse 20 clearly shows that. Moreover, the law entered that the offense or the sin might abound. Now, when there was no law, men were not so conscious of sin that once God entered just a law, a benchmark, when God did that, then men could see clearly and understand that they had sinned, that they had broken God's law, that God's standard was not lived up to. That's what the law does. It shows us clearly where we have fallen short, where we have sinned, where we have broken the law of God. In fact, in Romans 7, 7, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would have not known covetousness, covetousness except the law has said, you shall not covet. 
But sin, taken opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. In other words, Paul's saying, when the law came into... <laughs> when the law happened, we realized we're sinners. We're breaking God's law. But here's the problem with fallen human nature. It wants to break the law. It wants to flout the rules. And we can see that in society. We can see every law being broken and flouted. We, we happened to mention in other contexts last week how God sets governments in place and armies and police forces and laws and judiciary and courts and prisons. Why? Because men want to break the law. They want to flout the rules. And, and we hear all the time from TV directors and producers and movies that we're pushing the envelope. They want to break law. They don't want to be hemmed in and limited. You, you hear about some people, particularly celebrities, when they die, and they said, oh, they were a free spirit. In other words, they wanted to live how they wanted to live. <laughs> they wanted to break all of the rules. They felt they were free to do this. We were liberal. We could do whatever we like. But that's fallen human nature does that. And by the way, Galatians 3.24 says, The law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Spurgeon, in his own quaint way, said, It's the black dog that drives the sheep to the shepherd. And so that rebellious, fallen human nature wants to break the law. So in a sense, it seems that sin has increased because man deliberately flouts and breaks God's law. And of course, stand condemned before a holy God when that happens. There's no doubt that sin's increasing. There's no doubt that it's abounding. There's no doubt that Satan's going about as a roaring lion. Probably none of us ever thought we would live to see the day when governments would bring in laws to deliberately flout God's law, to defy God's law. We have governments today, world leaders, who are in defiance against the laws of God. And we'll break them. And we'll make it law to break them. And if we, here's the, the crazy thing, is if we want to keep God's law, then we'll end up breaking man's law. And we'll be the ones in the wrong. No wonder the, the early apostles have said, these are they that have turned the world upside down. Because everything they did was against what the world stood for. And so there's no doubt that that's increasing. But Paul says, where sin increases, where it multiplies, where it bounds, pleiotizo, grace does much more abound. And the word he uses for much more abounds is hyperparashuo. And hyperparashuo means more exceedingly, superabundantly, overflowing. One means more, the other means much more. One means increasingly, the other means exceedingly. One means abundantly, the other means superabundantly. 
So no matter how far sin goes, no matter how deep the depths it goes to, God's grace is more. It's more abundant. It's greater than. It's overflowing. It's exceedingly abundantly. No wonder Paul says he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we can even ask or think. Here's how some different translations and paraphrases put Romans 5.20. Moffat, law slipped in to aggravate the trespass. Sin increased, but grace surpassed it far. The New Living Translation. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Weymouth's translation. Now law was brought in later on so that the transgression might increase. But where sin increased, grace has overflowed. And I think the Amplified puts it lovely. But when the law came in, only to expand and increase the trespass, making it more apparent and exciting opposition. But when sin increased and abounded, grace, God's unmerited favor, has surpassed it and increased the more and superabundant abundant. Grace is always going to be greater than your sin and my sin. And thank God for that. Because without God's amazing grace, we could not stand or sit here today. What mountain are you facing? What obstacle? What stumbling blocks? What seemingly undefeatable, unbeatable, implacable foe are you facing? What hardships? What setbacks? What reversals? God has a super abundant grace for you today. I look at some of you today before me, knowing your history, knowing the stuff you face in life, and only the grace of God has got you this far. Only the grace of God. The bigger the test, the bigger the testimony. The bigger the challenge, the greater the champion you'll be when you win through. The severer the trial, the sweeter the triumph. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, and God is able to make all grace abound toward you. Not only is his grace super abundant, but it's bounding in super abundance toward you. That you having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Do you remember Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, how that he was caught up into the third heaven? He saw things that was unlawful for him to tell another human being. And after that incredible experience, Paul says, lest he would be puffed up with pride, he got a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, to buffet him. Now, there's people claim this is sickness, this was illness, that he had glaucoma, he had a 
he, had, he had a hunched back, he had bendy legs, he had everything. None of those things are in the Bible about Paul. This would seem to be a demonic spirit that stirred up people against him everywhere he went. Everywhere Paul went, somebody, somewhere, wanted to kill him or imprison him or stop him everywhere. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord repay him according to his works. And that was only one. But he said, my grace is sufficient for you. Paul prayed three times. You know, Paul was a, an incredible, an incredible minister of the gospel. Outside of Christ, he was the greatest man that ever walked the face of the earth in New Testament times. And yet, he was a man with feelings. He could feel hurt and pain and rejection and opposition and trouble and stress and strife. He faced all of that. And this particular thorn in the flesh, whatever it may be, was getting to him. He didn't want it. He wasn't enjoying it. And he was crying unto God, please, Lord, three times, please remove this. I hate this. And the Lord says, no, I won't remove it. But my grace will be more than enough for you to handle it. In other words, my grace will be super abundant. You'll not just get by in my grace. You'll overcome victoriously with my grace. And any reading of Paul's life throughout the New Testament, you'll see clearly that that's exactly what he did. And there was times it was really, really rough. And there's times he even despaired of life itself. But at the end of it, he was able to say, I have run my race. I have finished my course. I have fought the good fight. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. The grace of God surpassed every and any situation he faced and that we'll face. We'll not face what Paul faced, but we'll have our own challenges. We'll have our own situations to face. Every believer does in one way or another, but the grace of God is there to carry us and to lift us and to help us. My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. When you're at your weakest point and your weakest place, look out for the grace of God. Look out for the promises of God's grace. And sometimes we may just have to say, Lord, I, I, just, need, I just need your grace right now to do this, to handle this, to go through this, to face this. I need your grace. And the promise is he's got an abundance of it. Hallelujah. And he's not miserly and, and it doesn't, it's not meagerly measured out to us. It comes in abundance. The Apostle Paul, uh, one of his favorite sons, as it were, was Timothy. A young man that he had mentored. 
you know, in Acts 19, uh, Paul founded the church at Ephesus and spent three years in Ephesus. Ephesus was a, an incredible city, big, big city. They reckoned that there was maybe a million people in Ephesus at that time. And Paul, God used Paul to raise up a great church in Ephesus. That wasn't a building like this. It was scattered all over the city. And he was there training and teaching and ministering and preaching. And young Timothy was a, a wonderful young man, great potential. And Paul raised him up. And it, it would seem like, though, that, that young Timothy had, had problems. You know, he, he, he certainly had problems with his, with his stomach. Uh, he seemed to have problems regarding his youth. Let no man despise your youth, because he was a young man given tremendous responsibility. And Paul then had to leave, and then Paul gets arrested, and he's under house arrest, and he starts to write to Timothy and to Titus, who was another pastor. Now, Titus, Timothy would be the pastor at that time of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus. Titus would have been the pastor in Crete. And Titus was a, a, a different type than Timothy. And he was a more mature man. Uh, but Crete was very different than Ephesus, although both were pagan. I mean, Ephesus was just a whole big, massive pagan city. The, the great Diana of the Ephesians, you know, the, the great statue, that awful, licentious lifestyle. But Crete, Paul said about one of their poets, he says, you Cretans are lazy beasts. <laughs> He agreed. So they were a wild lot. But Timothy, or, or Titus, was he, he was fine. He could handle that. He was one of the ones, you know, that Paul, whenever they, he asked the Corinthians to raise the money for the mother church at Jerusalem who were going through difficulties, he was one of the ones that Paul got involved in handling the money situation because he was a mature, he was a good man, mature man. But when Paul writes to Timothy and to Titus, everybody else when Paul wrote to him, he says, grace and peace be unto you. But with them, it was grace, mercy, and peace be unto you, because they needed all the mercy they could get. By the way, when he says grace be unto you, that was a Greek charis. And the Greeks loved that word. They would say, when they'd meet, they'd say charis. It means favor, blessing to you, which is a lovely salutation. You know, but peace was shalom. That's the Hebrew, which is prosperity and blessing and favor and all of that. And that's what he would normally write in, in the beginning of all of his letters. But in their case, it was he put mercy in because they needed the mercy of God. They needed the grace of God to get them through. And so uh, Paul is, uh, he's in, like under house arrest. And so he is, people could come and visit him. But he had, he had lost his, his total freedom. But he was under house arrest when he wrote his first letter uh, to Timothy. Now, the church by that age was about maybe eight years old. And so he, he writes to Timothy as, as the pastor. And uh, he had the freedom to do that. And he's concerned because the church has gone through all kinds of problems. False teachers are coming in. There's some disputes within the church. There's, all, there's always, 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 always problems in church life. There was then, there is now, there will be that Jesus comes because he's working with imperfect vessels. 
And if you think you're a perfect vessel, then please leave now, because we can't deal with you. But I know you won't, because you know you're imperfect, as every preacher and pastor is. But uh, Paul's writing to uh, young Timothy, uh, because there's issues and there's problems. But then by the time he comes to write his second letter, Second Timothy, then things has changed somewhat. In fact, if we could just read first of all, in First Timothy chapter one verse twelve, if we could just read this first of all. And I thank Christ I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Note this. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So in a way, send to Timothy, look, I know you're up against it. I know there's problems. I know it's a big, big responsibility you've got on your young shoulders. And I know you have feelings sometimes of being inadequate or maybe even inferior. But he says, listen, I was the chiefest of sinners. And look what the grace of God has done in my life. Look what the mercy and grace of God in superabundance has done for me. And what he's done for me, he can do for you, Timothy. And what he did for Timothy and what he did for Paul and Titus, he can do for us. Because his grace has not changed. But by the time Paul then writes the second time to Timothy, things has changed dramatically. There's about five years of a time difference between the two letters. And in that five years, there was something happened that changed everything. Nero, that brutal, that brutal man, and historians argue about this, but most believe that he was the one who set fire to Rome. Because even though he was a brutal pagan man, but he was a great visionary when it came to architecture and building that he wanted to build his, put his own personal stamp on the city of Rome. But whenever the fire spread and many, many people were destroyed and homes ruined, then there was, a, there was rumblings and he needed a scapegoat. He needed somebody to blame. So they blamed the Christians. And he made Christianity illegal. And persecution began to happen. And it began to spread, and the ripples of persecution went all through the empire, even to Ephesus and beyond. And Christians were being arrested and put to death in the most cruel fashion. And so Paul is writing the second time to Timothy, because the church now, that great, big, bustling, thriving, healthy church, Yes, it had problems, but it was a wonderful church. Now it's being persecuted. Believers are there. Some of them are even leaving church, not coming back, afraid, under pressure, being persecuted. So he writes the second time. But what's his theme? Chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Timothy. 
You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Same message. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, the grace that God gave you then, he'll give you now. In fact, he'll give you more now because you need more of his grace. You need more, and he's got more for you. When you need more, he'll give you more. Hallelujah. Much more. You'll never exhaust God's grace. And so he reminds him, and the things which you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others. You therefore must endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Apostle John writes in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 16, and of his fullness we have all received and grace for grace. The New Living Testament puts it this way, or translation, for this, for his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. The Weymouth, for he it is from whose fullness we all have received and grace upon grace. Isn't it wonderful to think this morning that no matter what you're facing right now, no matter what you're going to face tomorrow or later on in life, that God has really got enough grace for you to handle that. Because I know that all of us, we're human beings, and we think, how in the world can I handle this? How, how can I deal with this? We've all been there, haven't we? But God has got a grace to deal with that. He's added strength for you to handle that. So when that moment comes, it'll be there. It's in reserve, hell for you. And sometimes we have to remind ourselves and ask and pray and say, Lord, I need your grace today, right now, to handle this. And it's amazing how that grace comes. Way back in the book of Zechariah, which is the second book from the end of the Old Testament. In the book of Zechariah, just a wee bit of background here. The temple had been raised, and Jerusalem had been destroyed. But God uh, had allowed a remnant to come back to raise up the temple again that had been destroyed. But there was disputes, there was pressures, there were stresses, there were strife. It had been left unattended. This went on for years. People were building their own houses instead of building up the house of God. And then God spoke to a man called Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was a, a, a civic leader. And he spoke to Zerubbabel to get this job done, to get this finished, because everybody was dragging their heels. And the high priest at that time was Joshua, not the Joshua under Moses, but Joshua, the high priest. And the two prophets were Zechariah and Haggai. 
So you had a civil leader, you had the religious leader, you had these two great prophets. And so they started to rebuild. And again, it was fraught with problems and difficulties and holdups and setbacks and pressures and stresses and strains. Anybody going to do anything for God, no matter what it is, it's not going to be easy. There's going to be difficulties, there's going to be stresses, there's going to be strains, there's going to be pressures, there's going to be reverses, there's going to be setbacks, there's going to be holdups, there's going to be everything. If it was easy, everybody would be doing it, but they're not. If it was easy, everybody would be sticking at it, but they're not. And so, in Zechariah chapter 3, then it, no, sorry. Let me just get my place right. Zechariah chapter 4, beg your pardon. Zechariah chapter 4. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right hand of the bowl, one at the left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. I wish I had time to go into what those actually stood for, but it's not our subject. So he said to me, so he answered and said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. Huh. Who are you? You know, it reminds me about David and Goliath. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Who are you to defy Zerubbabel? Who are you to hold up the work of God? Who are you to come against my kingdom and my work? Who are you, O great mountain? Have you got a mountain today to climb? A mountain that's in front of you? Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become a plain. God is going to deal with you, mountain. You shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone. It'll be finished. There'll come a point where it'll be finished. It'll be done. It'll be ended. It'll be over. Be complete. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Isn't that a strange thing to shout? With shouting grace, grace to it. In other words, it's going to be done. The mountain is going to be a plain, but it'll not be your strength. It'll be by my spirit, says the Lord. It'll not be by your ability or your cleverness or your whatever. It'll be my grace, my spirit. That's why you shout grace, grace to it, reminding 
yourself, reminding of the devil, reminding anybody that wants to know, this is the grace of God that's brought me through. It's the grace of God that's bringing me through. It's the grace of God that will get me through. Hallelujah. Remind yourself of that. It's the grace of God. Shouting grace, grace to it. So in other words, when they got it finished, they might have said, look what we have done. And God says, no, 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 it was my grace that did this through you. But you could not have done it without my grace. And we are not going to make it without his grace. Sure we're not. Every moment of every day, we need the grace of God to get through this life and to be what God wants us to be and do what God wants us to do and have what God wants us to have. We need the grace of God. Let me close with this. See, it's Spurgeon. In the 1800s, definitely the, the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world. By the age of 30, he had a church of 5,000 people, a megachurch. We talk about megachurches today. He had one in the 1800s. He had, no, he had no amplification like we have today. Hadn't even got an organ. He must have had a big, booming voice. But every Sunday, 5,000 people turned up to hear him when he was only 30. He was an exceptional man of God. And every, after every service, his sermons was typed out and sold in the streets. People bought them by the thousands. He has volumes and volumes of books that he has written. Every quarter, once every quarter, he would ask all of his 5,000 membership not to come to church on that Sunday because I want new faces. And they didn't come to church, and there were still 5,000 there. Hallelujah. But great as he was, powerful as he was, mighty preacher that he was, he had moments where he had great downs. He called them preacher's fainting fits was his way of putting it. When he felt low, really, really low, when he wanted to give up and quit, many times Spurgeon would have just give up. Hard enough. And there's a story when he was making his way home from church one Sunday. And after a heavy day's work and feeling very wearied and depressed, that verse came to him, my grace is sufficient for thee. And he immediately compared himself to a little fish in the Thames, apprehensive, less drinking, so many pints of water in the river each day, it might drink the Thames dry. And hearing Father Thames say to it, drink away, little fish, my stream is sufficient for thee. Then he thought of a little mouse in the granaries of Joseph in Egypt, afraid lest it might, by daily consumption of the corn it needed, exhaust the supplies and starve to death. When Joseph came along and sensing its fear said, Cheer up, little mouse, my granaries are sufficient for thee. Or again, when he thought of himself as a man climbing some high mountain to reach its lofty summit and dreading lest he might exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere, when the Creator Himself said, Breathe away, O man, fill thy lungs ever, my atmosphere is sufficient for thee. Then He told His congregation, For the first time in my life, I experienced what Abraham felt when he fell on his face and he laughed. It was a joyful experience. He said, At that moment, I had so much joy 
when I thought of the abundance of God's grace to help me, to get me through, to lift me up. So that grace that was available to Paul and to Timothy and to Titus and to Spurgeon is the exact same grace that's available to you and to me today. No different. Hasn't in any way depleted. The supplies are exhaustive. <laughs> there is no way you're going to run out of the grace of God. It's there for you every moment of every day. And we need to be aware of it and thank God for it. Amen. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.